Hey friends, welcome to Talk With Me. This is Marcia Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas. And today I get to do a show that actually relates to Lawrence, Kansas, but also because of what Lawrence, Kansas is, it kind of relates to this whole country at a certain point in time and moving forward and the connection between art and social issues, all kinds of things. I'm really excited. I, I love hearing stories about other times and comparing those to now and knowing that, hey, there's stuff we can do to make this place better. <laughs> we must do. So today my guest is somebody who is very well known these days for his painting. I had an idea that somehow I'd heard his name with photography and it turned out I was right about that. And then there's this kind of intersection with something that's going on in Lawrence, Kansas at the Watkins Museum of History with an exhibit about the 60s in Lawrence, Restate Free Spirits, Lawrence 1960s counterculture. Um, so cool stuff going on with my guest, John Gary Brown. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm excited. As I keep saying, it's it's fun to hear the stories. I know there are people that you will reference. It's like, oh, I've heard that name or I've met that person and read different things about this time and different things. I, I, I miss the 60s in Lawrence, but I've been around Lawrence for a long time and been around a lot of people who have been involved with things that were what would be considered more on the counterculture than conservative end of things. I'll just leave it at the hat. <laughs> so, so just for people who who have not yet encountered your painting, your photography, a little bit about you. Who are you, John Gary Brown, aka Brownie, to your friends? Yes. Uh, well, I first came to Lawrence in the fall of 1965, and I was already in graduate school by that time, uh -huh. and I had gone to. Uh, briefly to the University of Nebraska and I had so many friends and the department here was so exciting that I decided to jump ship and come and, and uh, be in the graduate program at the University of Kansas. What were you studying? I was in, in drawing and painting. Okay. And in fact, uh, they used to have a, a exhibition, a juried exhibition at the Nelson Gallery in Kansas City called the Mid-America Exhibition and it was uh, 8,000 entries and so on, and I had just won first prize in that exhibition. Ah. And so I came here to teach freshman classes and to get my MFA, and I was the fair-haired boy because uh -huh. I had just you know, scored this big prize at this exhibition. Uh -huh. But by the time I left KU, I, I was uh, not the fair-haired boy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because I had sort of jumped into the counterculture movement by that faculty at KU thought that I was giving my students LSD like, <laughs> you know, like uh, Timothy right. Leary had done, you know, which okay. was not true, but uh -huh. they were, uh, I had very long hair at the time, uh -huh. and that was unusual in those days, and, uh -huh. and they were just uh, afraid of me eventually, and they uh -huh. rode me out of town on a rail as wow. far as the graduate program was oh, concerned, no. and so I spent some time in New York City and then uh -huh. uh, went to Seattle. I eventually did get my master's degree at the University of Washington in Seattle and then came back to Lawrence for some reason. What I, 
<laughs> I was offered a teaching job at the University of Washington because by that time, everybody had long hair and <laughs> they weren't afraid of me anymore. And, uh, and I turned the job down uh, and came back to Lawrence, Kansas, just because I missed the town. Uh. And I went to work at a head shop for a dollar an hour. So <laughs> one of my great career moves that I'm famous for. <laughs> so I, I just hung out here forever, and I've, uh -huh. I've been in Lawrence ever since. We, uh, After a, that brief foray to the both coasts, I arrived in Lawrence in the fall of uh, 1970, and, uh, and that, I've been here ever since. Uh -huh. so. And you've you've been involved with photography initially and painting all along as well. I, I've always been a painter, uh, going back to the early '60s when I was uh, at Wichita State University, uh -huh. and um, I painted and sold artwork from about 1962 or something like that. Uh -huh. And uh, I never thought you could make a living as an artist, so I was always looking for some sort of a day job that uh -huh. I used to, to support my artistic habits. And, and um, eventually I discovered that I was making a living. But in the meantime, I, I worked at the head shop for a dollar an hour and I, and I eventually opened a photography studio where uh -huh. we did kind of counterculture sorts of things. You know, we did on location portraiture uh -huh. as opposed to you know, the old fashioned way was this, Put a bunch of lights around somebody in a studio right. and shoot them like that, and and instead of doing that, I would take people out. We would roam around and find some neat old place where I'd never photographed anybody before, uh -huh. and so uh, that in that way, their their uh, portrait would be kind of unique. And uh, so we did that for about uh, from seventy two until seventy nine. And then I discovered I was making a living as an artist selling work in Seattle mostly. And so we closed the studio and I've been an artist ever since. Uh -huh. You don't consider your photography art? Well, I do in some cases. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I mean, it has strayed over into art at times. <laughs> but, but it was mostly just a matter of documenting people, you know, uh -huh. and making them look good and, and uh, trying to look for a kind of a spontaneous moment. And, uh -huh. uh, but I think it would be pushing it to say most of it was art. A little bit of it turned out to be art. But, uh, my wife, Christy Brandt, is an actress, and she has been with a little theater in Colorado for 44 summers. Wow. And so we go out there every summer and, uh, and come back to Lawrence in the winter. So that's kind of our six months off and six months on with Douglas County. Uh-huh. And, uh, had she ever lived in Lawrence before? Had she ever? Yeah, uh, yeah she went to KU okay. uh, just about the time I was gone to Seattle. <laughs> and so we, we missed each other. Uh -huh. And then uh, about the time that I came back, she had uh, um, decided to move back to Chicago where, where she was born and uh -huh. lived. Uh, and so I didn't meet her that time either. Uh-huh. And eventually, I, I had a kind of a casual girlfriend named Rebecca Balding, who was an actress also. And I decided to go up and, and visit her in Chicago. And I met her roommate, 
who was Christy Brandt, my wife. Uh -oh. and the, and the, rest, <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah, that's cool. And, and Becky was only too happy to hand me off. <laughs> <laughs> we were very casual at best. <laughs> But she's still a good friend, and uh -huh. I have a very soft spot in my heart for Becky. Uh -huh. Having she, she's introduced me to Christy, and we've now been together for oh gosh, forty some odd years. Wow, so. that's great! I was married twice before. I was a two-time loser, and I thought <laughs> this this marriage thing is the kiss of death. You know, I, I got on with these two women really well until we were married. And then, as soon as we got married, then they began to feel kind of claustrophobic, you know, because it was the time of ferment and women were starting to question all the old traditional roles that they'd been given in life. Uh -huh. and, and rightly so. Uh, but, uh, when Christy and I got together, I said, let's not get married. I think this marriage thing is, this is the death of a relationship. So, uh -huh. so we lived in sin for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> And, and eventually, after 10 years, we said, oh, this is not, we belong together. Yeah. We might as well get married. So oh, we did. Very cool. <laughs> and I know that I, I really want to talk with you a lot about the photos and the, the that 60s time mm -hmm. and your connection to the Watkins. So before we launch into that, I really would like to hear more from you about your, your painting, since that's really the art that you love. It is. Uh, it's really been my... Uh, my life's work and my bread and butter. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just, I do love oil painting and I'm a great admirer of, um, uh, JMW Turner, who was an English landscape painter in the 19th century. And his paintings verged on abstraction at times. And I was inspired by his paintings and I took it just a little bit further and, and went all the way into non-objective painting. Okay. And so my paintings are, basically landscapes, but there are seldom any recognizable objects in them. And um, <clears throat> I, I, I like the ambiguity uh, and people always see different things mm -hmm. when they look mm -hmm. at paintings and people who have collected my artwork have told me that it always surprises them that it looks different in different light and, yeah. and they see different things, but everything is just sort of implied, uh -huh. not really spelled out. Uh -huh. And uh, I just had a show this last fall at the Cider Gallery, and then a couple of years ago at the Lawrence Art Center, uh -huh. a one-man show. Um, and I think over the years, I've probably done at least 500 paintings. I've lost track uh -huh. and sold most of them. And uh, it's uh, I was <clears throat> doing really well in Seattle, and uh, the art critic for the Seattle Times bought three of my paintings. And, wow. And the guy who ran the Seattle Rep Theater bought two. And, nice. And so on. And, and, and then my, um, uh, uh, the guy who ran the Foster White Gallery was the guy who really got me started in Seattle. And he died several years ago. And then the gallery changed hands. And so now I mostly just show in this area, mm -hmm. Tulsa and Lawrence and and Manhattan, and I do have a gallery in, in Colorado as mm -hmm. well, and, and one in uh, New Mexico, mm -hmm. but I'm sti sticking a little closer to home than I used to. <laughs> How about in terms of the landscapes that you paint? Do you have certain parts of the world that are 
your favorite parts for the the scenery and the light in terms of inspiring your painting? <clears throat> yeah, I, in in the early '60s, of course, I was inspired by the Kansas landscape, which <laughs> some people would say is not much of a landscape at all. But <laughs> that flat horizon and the huge skies uh -huh. were really interesting to me. Uh -huh. And I used to do paintings that were almost like cross sections, where you would see things underground, like like uh -huh. you had uh, carved out a cross section of the landscape, and you would see shapes that looked like roots and and growing things uh -huh. underground, and then the big Kansas sky and uh -huh. so on. But when I went to Seattle, I was uh, also really taken with that watery landscape out there, and and all the mist and fog all the time. And you would have a, a tugboat going by and it would be enveloped in fog and you would see a little bit of, of a barge that it was towing and so on. But everything was very fleeting mm -hmm. and, um, and it would change from minute to minute. And oftentimes you couldn't see any recognizable objects. Mm -hmm. And that was where um, I, I began to paint in this kind of signature style that I have now. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and then later, I uh, when I traveled and worked in Europe, um, I began to love that little European landscape where everything is is uh, divided up artfully, and you know they're wonderful uh, rows of trees and fields and old stone buildings and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so that was a another landscape that caught my attention. And then finally, uh, my wife and I went to the Middle East in 1990 as tourists and everybody thought we were crazy to go to the Middle East, especially as tourists. And a lot of our friends said goodbye to us when we left as if they were never going to see us again. <laughs> wow. We were in Yemen and we were in Jordan and Egypt and Tunisia. Uh -huh. And I loved the Middle East. I loved the people and I loved the landscape there. And so that kind of desert landscape, uh, was the final landscape that I kind of hung my flag on. And uh, and I still am influenced by all four of those basic landscapes. Uh -huh. So Very different and very interesting. Yeah. So sky in Kansas and water in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and artful arrangements in Europe. Yeah. And, yeah. and then the... Uh, the end of the world in the desert. <laughs> it is sort of the end of the world right now. I, I don't yeah. think I'd be going back to the Middle East the, these days. But yeah. when we were there in 1990, it was mostly peaceful and the people were sweet as they could be. Uh -huh. And the desert was beautiful in a bleak sort of way. Uh -huh. yeah. You traveled south. Like, are you in terms of Mexico or South America? I have Think been, about some of your friends that we have in common. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in fact, uh, Susie Ashline went with us on a, a trip that we took, and I believe it was, well, I forget the exact date, but we have been to Mexico, we've been uh -huh. to Yucatan, uh -huh. and we've been to the Guanajuato area, where we went down for Day of the Dead one time, and went and looked at the mummies in, uh -huh. in Guanajuato, and, uh, and I like Mexico, but there wasn't anything about the Mexican landscape that particularly uh -huh. captured me. I, uh -huh. I liked it uh, just in terms of the culture. Uh -huh. Have you ever, with your painting, partnered with a writer? I mean, are there, that's one of those those things that, that I've 
different people I've talked to who poetry and painting, for example, might be paired, um, inspired by each other. Is that a kind of knowing that you know poets? Uh-huh. Know, just... Yeah, and I and I was a poet for a while. Okay. I, I decided to be an English major for, uh, for uh-huh. one year when I was at Wichita State, <laughs> and I wrote lots of poetry about love and death. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and I still write. In fact, I'm working on a memoir right now. Um, but um, I think maybe, I don't know that there's any particular direct uh-huh. uh, link of the two. Uh-huh. When I think about somebody who um, has a, a sort of a hybrid art expression that, that incorporates both of those things, I think about S. Clay Wilson, the okay. cartoonist, who um, uh, did several Zap comics with Robert Crumb, and he did uh, comics in which uh, his characters would say things, and they were he had a wonderful way with language, uh-huh. kind of like Edward Gorey does. Edward Gorey was a man that he admired and I admired back in the early '60s, and I think Wilson was influenced by him and. And I would get illustrated letters from Wilson when I wasn't living with him. And uh, he would, uh, it was hard to know whether the artwork was more appealing or the use of the language. Uh (laughs) So I think he fits into that category better than than I do. Uh I think with me, the the two are kind of separate. Uh Uh Um, But I am working on a memoir and I did publish a book in 1993 at the University of Kansas Press called Soul in the Stone. It's a cemetery art from America's heartland, and it's now out of print, but uh, for two years in a row, it was their best-selling book. Wow. Um, I occasionally still buy them on the internet, you know, Mm -hmm. when they come up at estate sales or whatever, Mm -hmm. and then I can still sell one once in a while Mm -hmm. to somebody who wants one. Was did that include your photographs mm-hmm. and writing? Yeah, it was uh, the the two went together, and uh-huh. the, and that was it, that was much more of a of a real blend of of the literature and mm-hmm. the and the visual stuff mm-hmm. than my paintings have been. Mm-hmm. What brought you to that project? I've always been fascinated by cemeteries. <laughs> I, like I said, when I was in college, I wrote poems about love and death. Uh-huh. You know? Like like lots of sensitive young men. Really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I would go out and uh, and roam around through the cemeteries in Wichita, and I would always have lunch there. And sometimes I would have lunch with my girlfriend there, in and the we cemetery. would s- sit okay. on a tombstone and talk about the meaning of life uh-huh. and so on. Uh-huh. And I became interested uh, in cemeteries in a more general way when I began to encounter things that seemed like real works of art in the cemetery, but they were kind of ignored because they were in a cemetery. But uh, there was a wonderful um, statue of a little girl with a dog in the Wichita Cemetery. And I was fascinated with that. And later on, I learned that uh, about the girl and her dog and, Mm -hmm. and uh, she had died at age eight or nine, Uh something like that. And her family put that monument up and then they left the area. 
nobody knows what happened to the family. But there was a, we would always see flowers on this grave. And since the family was gone, we couldn't imagine where the flowers were coming from. And I eventually met this old lady at one of my book signings. And she said, I was a girl at the time and I used to steal flowers off the other graves and bring them to the little girl and her dog. So it was really sweet to finally meet her and took a picture of us together. It was really neat. But but cemetery art uh, is fascinating because it can run the gamut from, uh, I'll tell you about two tombstones. The first one is in Genoa, Italy, and it is, uh, it's an area where they do lots of beautiful sculpture, and they also are very melodramatic, as you know, the Italians are quite dramatic <laughs> about things. And Christie found a tombstone and led me to it when I was out photographing that cemetery. And I, when I saw this tombstone, I could literally feel my hair stand up. Wow. It was so creepy. It was a it was a little boy, a sculpture, life-size sculpture of a little boy running and rolling a hoop with a stick, which was a common toy that people used around the turn of the century, you uh-huh. know, the kids did. And from behind him coming out of the earth were two big bronze gnarled hands of death. Uh-huh. reaching up to grab him from underground. Uh-huh. And I thought, wow, this, yeah. is a, this family <laughs> was very bitter about the passing of their child and yeah. the, the fact that they would put that kind of a monument over his gravesite was amazing to me, but, yeah. but artistically <laughs> really exciting and wonderful. Uh-huh. But at the other end of the, of the spectrum, there's a guy in Fort Wayne, Indiana, who has a very ordinary tombstone, but at either end of the tombstone, either side of it, are two actual parking meters, and they say expired. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so that those are the two extremes you find with with, uh, with gravestones. I and, like that. <laughs> and, and I, everything in between. It, it's a, especially in Europe, it, the, they are open air sculpture museums. Uh-huh. Such beautiful work. Uh-huh. And awesome. uh, so that was another one of my passions. And interesting. And when I was uh, doing the portrait studio, I began to, uh, I of course loved to photograph beautiful ladies, and I had lots of college girls who came down to get their portraits shot and. So it wasn't primarily counterculture kinds of as that label no, of the exhibit. Uh, okay, it it was really a portrait studio, and um, and I, at, the more I did it, the more I realized I just loved photographing extreme beauty, and I think almost all women are beautiful, and so that was kind of the yin and the yang. You know, okay. I'm interested in gravestones and lovely young ladies, uh-huh. love and death. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, sticking with those themes. Yeah, and- I did. Now, when you were asking about the counterculture things uh-huh. relating to the photography, I yeah. did do a lot of counterculture um, so film developing and stuff. Guys would come in with a roll of film. They had photographed themselves with their with their old lady, you know, sitting around on a big bale of hay with a whole bunch of dope they had just harvested. <laughs> 
And so, and then I remember one the 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 his uh, wife was sitting next to him naked, and he had overalls on, and he had a big rifle. He was holding a rifle, and huge pile of bags of dope sitting beside him. And of course, these were the people who didn't want to take their pictures to be developed at Walgreens, you know, or whatever <laughs> they the were kind of incriminating. Were you know? yeah, yeah. But they knew that I was a, I was a counterculture type. They could trust you. I wouldn't turn them in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. How did you and the Watkins Museum connect around this exhibit that they have? Mm. It's because of Charles Jones. Okay. Charles Jones is very active in the museum, uh, and he is an old, old friend that we've been walking with for decades. He and his dogs and our dogs walk on the river levee a lot. And, mm-hmm. and Charles was telling me about an exhibit that they had in mind at the museum and wondering wondered if I would like to contribute some photographs to the exhibition and I said sure so it was really Charles that that led okay. me to the museum although I have always admired the museum and I've been there quite a lot over uh-huh. the years and I love that building uh-huh. um, but uh, now they seem to be uh, I don't know their exhibits are more varied and lively and so yes. on I yes. think it's really uh, turned a corner and yeah it, it was always fascinating to me but I think now it could be more appealing to more people. Right. There, there's the, a lot of tie into contemporary issues. Yeah, yeah. People might think, well, it's just about the history of Douglas County, and that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah true. Yeah. So Charles Jones got you connected to the Watkins, mm-hmm. and so your photos are part of this exhibit. Yeah. And we've, we've got photos of, of the old head shop, the Strawberry Fields, where I used to work. Uh-huh. And we've got... Uh, the so-called freak photos that back when we were first growing our hair long, a lot of the normal people in town would call us freaks. And so we kind of adopted that term as a, uh-huh. a form of endearment. Uh-huh. We would call each other freaks and uh-huh. stuff. And so in 1968, we decided to do a giant group portrait of all the freaks in town, of all the dropouts and the weirdos and the uh-huh. ne'er-do-wells. So kind uh, of like a, a classroom photo. Exactly, like, like yeah. the unclass of, <laughs> of 1968. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, so we did that, and it was quite popular, and we had a lot of fun with it. And, and then we would do one every year. We uh-huh. did one in 69 and 70 and 71 and so on. And as... As the years went by, uh, you could see a change in the photographs. And in the early days, it was all peace and love. And, you know, everybody, they looked like a bunch of hippies and so on. But uh-huh. but everybody was, it was all very benign and sweet. And, and then as time went on and people got more radical in their opposition to the war and so on. And, and, and when the drug culture was... Uh, underway and people were getting thrown in prison a lot and so on. You began to see a change in the group photo. People would be brandishing rifles. And there was even one that I did where a guy was holding up a big World War II bomb. (laughs) It was uh, in front of the Rock Chalk Cafe. And of course the bomb was empty, but Mm -hmm. it was just a reflection of how radical some people were getting. Uh 
In in your experience with that time and and the people who would be identified as as freaks, the people that were considered counterculture, was that a white thing? It well, not entirely, okay. but but it was. I think it was mostly white, just because most of the college crowd is white. I suppose. And still, I mean, not in those days, especially yeah. not so much. Now it's very international, and and really is a. But I mean, when you look at the breakdown of population in our area, it's we're a very white community. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but but there were I remember uh, when there was a, a shooting of Dow, one of the Dowdell uh-huh. uh, kids was shot and killed. But uh, I remember going to the, the one of the court appearances for the family and for mm-hmm. the police and so on. And so there there was some identification with you know, with the black community and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we identified with black people that even though we didn't have a lot of black friends, uh-huh. we could recognize that, that they were getting persecuted in, <laughs> in the same way that we were, you mm-hmm. know, of course we could, it was easy for us. We could cut our hair and stop the persecution, right. but they couldn't, you know, change the color of their skin. Right. But it really was in the early days, in in the mid '60s, it was quite intense. I I was run off the road on my motorcycle by pickup trucks yelling things at me, you know. And I remember going into a bar. This was in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, I was walking into a bar to go get a beer with a couple of friends, and a guy saw me, who was sitting in a booth, and he got out of the booth and got right in my face, and he said. If I had a kid that looked like you, I'd shoot the son of a bitch. Wow. And, so, and so I said, okay, man, peace and love. <laughs> wow. and, but the, it was really quite, uh, you know, we have the culture wars now, but uh-huh. uh, in some ways it was almost more dangerous in the early going there because people were just, they thought, if you grew your hair long, that they had the right to just kill you or, or beat you up or whatever, you know, just uh-huh. because you looked different. And it was upsetting to their idea of what America was supposed to look like, I suppose. Uh-huh. Which <laughs> but, parallels racism in general. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And it's get, getting to be a little bit more like that now. Uh-huh. You know, like, but it's ironic to me to, <laughs> to look at the way things have developed over the years and to see that the people now who wear their hair real long are mostly people from rural America or kind of the country music mm-hmm. crowd, you know, <laughs> and, and those are the people that used to want to kill me for having long hair. And now they've all got these long mullets and all sorts of things, you know, <laughs> and, and long stringy hair and long beards. And, yeah. uh, People, if you wore a beard, you were you were called a dirty beatnik, and you know it's uh-huh. just amazing. But but things do evolve. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things that's really interesting to me is the connection of art and social issues, mm-hmm. and you know from some of the people that that you've mentioned and people that before we were on air, you know, just kind of our communications that we have in common are people who are involved with art. Your wife is an actress. Mm-hmm. You're a, a painter. Yes. Jim McCrary, who's a poet. You know, S. Clay Wilson, mm-hmm. you mentioned. So, so. Yeah, and Jim's wife, Sue, is also an artist, and, and she works 
at the museum, the art museum at KU. All right. And so what's what's your explanation of like within this counterculture movement, it's that that label that's been given, it sounds awkward to me, but but that some of those people, not all of them, but some of those people were artists and there were some really strong art connections that are became national or international mm-hmm. in terms of who was was working together, knowing each other, this this thing. And I'm wondering what your thoughts on about what what brought the artist kind of connection. You know, I guess the the only thing that comes to mind off the top of my head is that people who are artists are more investigative and more questioning, you know, about the nature of life and love and so on. And so I think it, it, it did start, I think the counterculture movement did start in the art community, probably. But, um, just because, uh, you know, those are the people who are always asking questions about, you know, can we, what does this mean and can we make it better and mm-hmm. so on and and uh, and searching inside of themselves as well as to the uh, searching through areas of where other people are operating as artists and they and they like to compare you know experiences and so on but mm-hmm. but I, I think of course it, not all kind of culture people are artists, but, right. but I think there is a connection and I think it kind of originated as an artistic, uh-huh. not necessarily an artistic movement, but it, it was just artistic personnel mm-hmm. you know, because they were the ones that had all the questions. And, and I think everybody else in society thinks they have answers, you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but the artists always have more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to, and I guess what I don't know is whether there were a lot of communities like Lawrence that became kind of hubs in ways. Because I think about think about a you know a friend who I have who's a, an artist in Long Island, New York, mm-hmm. who studied under Allen Ginsberg. And here I know that Allen Ginsberg had been in Lawrence and was connected to people here. You sure. know? And, and so mm-hmm. it's like this. It's it's not you know is it. It, were there a lot of communities, do you think, that were like Lawrence that had these strong pockets of activity and thus became hubs in some ways? You know, I, I grew up in Kansas in the early days, and uh, so I only know about Kansas, okay. basically. But in Wichita, where uh-huh. I went to undergraduate school, we had a very uh, vibrant little enclave of people. Okay. But they really, it was a little island of artistic people, of in those days, they were called beatniks, but okay. and they were they mostly hung around the art department, um, the drawing and painting department, um, and I suppose probably almost after a while, almost every town had some kind of a little enclave of uh-huh. artistic types. Uh-huh. But those are the only ones you know uh, that I know about firsthand. Uh-huh. And then by the time I went to New York, you know, the movement was very much established and mm-hmm. everybody there had long hair and they were all free spirits and, mm-hmm. and we lived in the West village and, uh, and then in Seattle, uh, when, when I went there, it uh-huh. was very well established too. Uh-huh. And so they were not really outsiders anymore. Uh-huh. They were really kind of part of the mainstream. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, 
those early enclaves were the ones that were <laughs> they were they were brave to hang in there, you know. Uh-huh. But we we knew a lot of people who got arrested and yeah. you know got beaten up and so on. And it was it was kind of tough to be a counterculture yeah. person in those yeah. days. It's really interesting to me in, in so many ways. And one part is, you know, I, I discovered, I kind of came to connect with art only really recently in mm-hmm. the past several years in terms of in a, in a major way. And I would say that before that, pretty much my, you know, my energies went to two directions, you know, that personal and family friend network and then my involvement as director at Headquarters Counseling Center mm-hmm. and being so mm-hmm. immersed in nonprofit stuff and so many things that that we could help do and, and learn about and, you know, that. And then when I um, was, was connecting with artists, which happened really through the podcast, I realized that those artists mm-hmm. and those people who I now know across the country and beyond who are involved in work like suicide prevention or domestic violence um, and and things, you know, to to provide support for people. There's a lot in common with both of those people, you know, Mm -hmm. that art is an expression, a communication that's more public. And a lot of us are doing work that, that, you know, we want to influence communities, Mm -hmm. but we do a lot of like one-on-one helping people, but it's it's like a lot of the same personal characteristics. And it it's is. been really interesting. <clears throat> yeah, and it's it's no longer just a bunch of artists. I mean, there every segment of society is now trying to rethink the way we live and yeah. love and you know the, uh, the, there are so many ways we can improve ourselves, God knows. And, yeah. And and now it's uh, I think in every field of human endeavor people are are ha- having those creative impulses to yeah. want to improve things yeah. or, or to fine tune yeah. things. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, and I think it, it's no longer primarily an artistic movement. Right. It's a social movement. Right. And I see things like here, another Lord's based artist, Dave Lowenstein, who does and mm-hmm. amongst other things, murals and posters with messages of social justice that are international, not just here in Lawrence, Kansas, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I'm, interested that you know your name was familiar to me not because i'd seen your art but it was just familiar to me because of people i knew from the early days of headquarters you know that 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 it's like i don't know what the connection is but i know i've heard that name before you know Mm -hmm. and and so that that notion of the connectedness you know like we're saying that there are different ways to have impact and and to work on social justice and and art is one of those for sure so there are also fun things that come up, right? Like on Wednesday, the 21st, you're mm-hmm. doing a little tour at the Watkins of their 60s. Yes. And there's this marijuana clip from 60 Minutes in 1970. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's funny, but I was always a, I was stuck up for all the kids that got busted for smoking pot and whatever. Uh-huh. And so I was a, a member of what you could call the drug culture. But I never liked drugs myself. Uh-huh. I tried smoking pot, and it just made me paranoid and nervous. <laughs> and, and one time I took LSD, and it was one of the most horrible things I've ever been through. But some people and, probably look at your paintings and go, yeah, he did. Oh, yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, it, it was so early. Uh, it, when I took LSD, it was, it, 
this is how early it was. It was not yet illegal. Okay. They made it illegal shortly after that, but it was in the fall of 1966. And uh, this is when Timothy Leary was being interviewed in Playboy magazine and wow. stuff like that. So <laughs> interesting. So when you do this thing on Wednesday, mm -hmm. you know you're going to be. I mean, I guess I, I'm curious about that. You're going because you're the tour leader. You're not. You're not just there. <laughs> I probably better. <laughs> Think about what I might have to say. I, I walked in here today kind of cold. I just had no idea what I was going to say. But I probably ought to do a little preparation. But I suppose probably people will, it'll be mostly a question and answer thing. And uh -huh. People will want to talk about the photographs and uh -huh. stuff like that. And, and, um, and maybe about some of the same things that we've talked about today. But um, I'm, I think a lot of the photographs are kind of, well, to me, they're self-explanatory, but of course, to people who were involved in that scene, it was uh -huh. an awful lot that is kind of, uh, brings up questions of all kinds. Uh -huh. And, um, well, Paula, the, the gal in that, um, photograph that we were looking at earlier on her chopper motorcycle. Uh -huh sadly was killed in a motorcycle oh. crash and uh, we have uh, our our um, dentist charlie kincaid uh, knew her and, and he well he knew all the people that we uh, hung out with in the rock chalk in those ah, days okay but uh, he was he was one of those people that he hung out with the freaks you know but huh. he didn't become a freak himself but he kind of liked them and identified with them but he always stayed in his own little world so to speak so uh -huh. so i have often uh when i go down to get my teeth cleaned i'll sometimes take <laughs> charlie another photograph of of uh, one of the old counterculture people that he liked and admired uh -huh. uh, and paula was one of them he, uh, so uh -huh. i gave him a picture of her on her chopper that there are an awful lot of dead people in some of these photos <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i suppose that's true and at this stage and every walk of life, but, uh -huh. but uh, kind of sobering. To, Did you do <laughs> much documentation of kind of people? Was it was it mostly people who were based in Lawrence, or also when there were events that involved other people coming to this area? You know, other artists, uh, you know, writers. Yeah, like I did do some photos, and uh, Allen Ginsberg and Peter Orlovsky stayed at our house when when they were here in 1965, I guess it was. And they were staring, staying with a KU librarian uh, across the alley from us. And we were on Main Street and they were on Missouri Street. And the librarian who I knew slightly came over and said, you know, we've had Alan and Peter over here for a couple of days, but they're always naked and they're always smoking pot and, and, and we have kids. And so can we, can we pass them off to you? So, so we said, sure. So, so Alan and Peter came over and, and spent a night or two with us. And, and then later, uh, I actually saw him again in Creed, Colorado, in our uh -huh. other home base. Uh -huh. so we actually had a little bit of a poetry movement out there and it's okay. kind of reinvented itself from a mining town into a art town uh -huh. 
and uh, they came and did a reading out there. Uh-huh. So, which was completely had no relationship to us, whatever, except I did take pictures uh-huh. of the event. And um, so, yeah, it, I've tried to document the counterculture because I think nobody else was doing it. Uh-huh. I think it was considered kind of uptight, you know, to, to be concerned with trying to make things permanent and uh-huh. you, you just changes everything and you just go with the flow and so on. And I think there's a lot to that, but uh, since nobody else was doing it, I thought, well, you know, I could yeah. perform a useful function here by documenting some of these crazy times. Yeah. So, when nobody else was doing it. Yeah. In my, my personal interest, I must ask, did, do you have things that relate to headquarters starting in 1969 with Dave Nutt and Uh, Brian Bowerly? I don't, I don't have anything. Let's see. Um, No, you know, what, when did that start exactly? December of 1969. Yeah. 69. See, we were gone. We were in Seattle at that time. Uh And probably if I had been here when it was first launched, you know, I probably would have known Dave and, and gone over and done some pictures or whatever. Uh-huh. But we were we were gone for uh, 68, 69 and 70 um, for uh, I went to graduate school. And we uh, of course, we were here in 68 to do the freak photo. Uh-huh. But shortly after we did that, I moved to Seattle. Uh-huh. And then we came back uh, in 69, and then we moved back in 1970. Uh-huh. And it was quite intense in the spring of 1970. There, We had a huge demonstration in Seattle where like 40,000 people closed the freeways, uh-huh. and, and uh, the cops were beating heads and knocking uh-huh. people off freeway ramps and stuff. And it was, it was very intense. It was right after Kent State. And so we we were very much involved in it. But on the other hand, I thought it'd be kind of nice to drop out of all this crazy stuff and yeah. just be back in my own little hometown of Lawrence, Kansas. So I came back here and moved back in. And when I arrived here, there was a curfew. <laughs> we couldn't even go out at night yeah. because of all the trouble here, yeah. too. So I think spring 70 was the semester when students at the university were given the choice to take the grades mm-hmm. or complete. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we had, uh, it was the same in Seattle. We, they, they really there was racial the tension. There mm-hmm. was tension about. Oh the, yeah. yeah. And in fact, uh, I have a photograph, which I think is in the exhibition of uh, George Kimball, who was the hippie candidate for sheriff. Uh, kind of a tongue in cheek candidate. I think he was an official candidate, but it, I don't think anybody ever thought he would be elected. Uh, but I have a picture of him sort of uh, lecturing to a crowd in front of the Gaslight uh-huh. uh, beer joint. And it was right after Nick Rice was shot and killed by the police the previous night. And uh, they were very polarized times. And and the death of the, the killing of Tiger Dowdell, I mean that mm-hmm. that yeah. that shooting is still something that was never nobody was ever given any consequence, and that's still yeah. something that's that's you know black mark on Lawrence's history. I would yeah, it is, and uh, we went to that hearing, um, and 
there was a woman who wanted to give testimony about that, but they they wouldn't uh, give her they wouldn't let her speak unless she would give up her immunity from prosecution or something. Uh-huh. I, I forget exactly what the nuts and bolts were, uh-huh. but um, but anyway, there was a lot of groaning and jeering in the courtroom and. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it, it did seem like, a, well, of course, those police shootings go on in the black community. They have gone on forever. And um, in a lot of cases, it's hard to see the justification for those shootings. Right. I mean, people who were unarmed and walking away with their backs turned right. or shot and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, even though as the counterculture for us, to some extent, has been absorbed into society. Um, it, black people are still dealing with really the same polarized situation that mm-hmm. they've always been in. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's yeah, we were uh, armchair revolutionaries, you know, but it was easy, like I said before, we could, we could cut our hair and get a job, and you know, right. and all of a sudden we were the fair haired boys of your girls again. Uh-huh. But uh, not an option for black people. Right, so right. One of our unresolved problems that we need to keep working on. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long it's going to take, but mm-hmm. my wife, Christy, always says that when everybody is married to everybody else, and you know, there's no longer any such thing as race, and we've all intermarried, and <laughs> maybe by that time we'll finally be tolerant of everybody. I don't know what it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get back to this Wednesday night thing with mm-hmm. at the 21st at the Watkins. That the actual exhibit about the 60s and Lawrence goes on until mid June, but right. but Wednesday they're showing these these marijuana uh, Lawrence marijuana raids. I can't. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what yeah. the exact title of the segment is from 60 Minutes. And and I I know I'd mentioned to you when we were sort of planning things that. One of the reasons that that intrigued me is because I had, you know, obviously I have this connection to headquarters because I keep bringing that up, the counseling, the 24-hour center here in Lawrence. But but um, I remember one of the stories that I heard was that the Caw Valley hemp pickers, mm-hmm. you know, sort of saved headquarters at one point financially, that they, you know, that, that not that there was a lot of money going into mm-hmm. this 24-hour drug crisis center, but but some was needed to keep the facility it was a house at 1546 mass originally you know and so so that connection between people um and the drug culture and mm-hmm. and this crisis center that that has evolved in all these years yeah um, it's a really positive one <laughs> it, it is and i i think it, within that culture even when it got to be a drug culture primarily and it was kind of a party culture uh-huh. almost but there was still some idealism there. Uh-huh. People still cared about other people. And uh-huh. and I kept photographing those people because they, even though it had gotten kind of a little bit morphed into something that I didn't quite recognize, uh-huh. uh, I did a giant group picture of the Cavalli hemp pickers too. And they had an old barn that had the shingles were put in, uh, different colors of shingles were put in in a way that it said KVH. Ah. And uh, in fact, I've got one of those in that collection. I'll show sure. it to you. But uh, but yeah, that I was by that time getting to be a little bit 
estranged from the movement. You know, I was kind of, I had sort of dropped out of the re- extremely rebellious part. And part of it was that I was older than a lot of the people. You mm-hmm. know, when I was a, a hippie, I was way up in my 20s. Uh-huh. And a lot of the kids I knew in those days were in their teens right. or early 20s right. anyway. So, so yeah, I, I, I think the Caw Valley hemp pickers were, you know, in a lot of cases, pretty good guys, you know. Even though the, you know, the old, uh, it's kind of ironic, the pot that you could pick here in Kansas but, uh, was actually pretty worthless. It was planted as a source of hemp for World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could smoke it, but hardly anything would happen to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might get a little bit of a headache and a cough, you know. <laughs> but it was really pretty worthless. It, but, but people picked it and sold it. Sometimes it was sold to cut better uh, uh-huh. kinds of pot that was brought in from, you know, the tropics or whatever. Uh-huh. But, uh, but it was the, I, I think it was just people just didn't think that, that society had the right to tell them what they could do and what they couldn't do as long as they weren't hurting anybody else. Yeah. And I think that's what drew me to the so-called drug culture was I was picturing J. Edgar Hoover and all these guys swilling their scotch and getting drunk and and going to watch strippers and what. And then meanwhile, some poor slob that smokes some pot is languishing in prison. Yeah. And it just didn't seem right to me. (laughs) And even though I never liked pot, I always defended everybody's right to smoke it if they wanted to. Yeah. You never heard of a pot room brawl. <laughs> <laughs> it was always a bar, a bar room brawl. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> so, well, yeah. it's interesting. You know, I don't know if this is still accurate, but I think in, in my learning back in, you know, with early times at headquarters, um, the things that when I came as a volunteer counselor, the kind of training and information, it the message then was that the illegality of marijuana in particular was really a racist um, law, Mm -hmm. that it was really, marijuana had been associated with use by by blacks. Yeah, black musicians That was was really Mm -hmm. the impetus for making that particular drug illegal. And so it's, it's really, it's also interesting to me to look at, I don't think there was as much there are a lot of things that have changed and a lot of things that still need changing. I don't, I know that I wasn't as aware of the, 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 a lot of different impacts of racism. I wasn't aware until probably last year when I was having a conversation with Oliver Hall. I don't know if you happen to know him. He's Mm -hmm. a writer and filmmaker and um, he, um, and he's based in Lawrence and he's African-American, and I didn't know this thing, sunset laws, you know, and he would talk about how literally that his father who ran a construction company, his, his, in this small town in Kansas where, where they, where he, where Oliver grew up, mm-hmm. that his father would be hired, but literally as sun went down, those white people believed they had the right to kill any yeah. African-American person, any black person. Yeah. And that, these people who might be, you know, 
relatively polite to Oliver as this kid helping with his dad's construction stuff, whatever he would be doing, that the treatment was, it, he was, his life was literally in danger after mm -hmm. sunset. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, we even had laws here in um, Lawrence about, uh, I can't remember the exact nature of the law, but it was something like there was a certain number of Native Americans who could not be together that you, you couldn't gather in a in a group of more than six four or five or six native americans in one place that, or that could be dispersed and arrested mm -hmm. you know was you know if you got 10 native americans together it was a riot you know <laughs> so so terribly racist laws and now maybe some of the laws change but my statement about this time this 2017, 2018 time is that there's more uh, public permission to be hateful. I'm not sure there's more hate, but there's more being yeah. public about it is is more okay. Sadly, yeah, yeah it's really the yeah, it's it's become fashionable <laughs> in a, in a perverted sort of way. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, we have our our uh, our Beloved President Donald Trump, I still can't believe it, yeah. is, has uh, enabled those people yeah. uh, to yeah. a very large extent. Yeah. So when we go back to this exhibit that's happening at the Watkins Museum, um, Free State, Free Spirits, Lawrence, 1960s Counterculture, and then on Wednesday, the 21st, uh, your tour and the Kansas Marijuana Harvest clip from 60 Minutes. When you think about that exhibit, and, mm -hmm. and you had praised earlier the Watkins Museum for you know, having more contemporary kinds of issues being represented, is there, are there some things in particular that you hope people get out of experiencing this? Oh, gosh. I hadn't really thought about that. I, I just thought about you know, putting, putting uh, that time up onto the walls uh -huh. to maybe jog some memories and uh -huh. and have people kind of reflect on it themselves. Uh -huh. um, Which fits with your painting style. So yeah, I, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, to kind of fit themselves into the, you know, either into the middle or onto the periphery or whatever. Uh -huh. But I hadn't really, I didn't really have a particular message in uh -huh. mind. Uh -huh. I guess, uh, I guess uh, one thing that occurs to me is that it was a relatively peaceful kind of a movement which really had to do with human understanding of different kinds of people and, and uh, learning to live with other kinds of people. It was I, I loved it in the early going that okay. when it was really so peaceful. Okay. And um, and even after it got kind of radical they were still the hippies were in the counterculture. People were never very violent. They had all these guns to defend themselves. They thought, you know, but but they shouldn't. They probably shouldn't even try because I've always found that counterculture people are not very good shots. <laughs> That's dangerous. <laughs> if the right wingers are much better shots than we yeah. are, you know? yeah. so so when they have a serious assassinations, it's almost always by right wingers. Yeah. Who can shoot straight? You know? yeah. 
And and so you're you're not having a you know really specific. This is something I hope people get. Again, it does fit with with what you've described about your painting, mm -hmm. that you create these images and and people get to make their own meaning of the colors and shapes, and even in different lighting might see different things. Yeah. And and, and so we want people to go experience this exhibit at the Watkins. Consider this 60 Minutes clip from 1970 yeah. about marijuana in Kansas and think about, you know, what does it say to us yeah. in 2018? You know, if if that, you know, if I as a very light-skinned white person go in there, what are the messages that I might take out of there in terms of 2018 and things that we know are difficult for people in different vulnerable populations. What can I do differently? You know, not to just look at it like kind of a cool movie that I got to go experience, mm -hmm. but yeah. but what what can I do? You know, what can I do? And I, that's that's always my hope for people is that we really think about how we can each contribute person to person or in bigger yeah. ways on making this a better place. Yeah, if, if people see something that. Uh, causes something to happen internally where, whereby they decide what they can do or what they should do. Mm -hmm. uh, that's great. I, I think the counterculture has never been very good at telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. It's only been good at suggesting things that are possibilities. Mm -hmm. so. Very good. And so again, you know, this is John Gary Brown. You've got a website. People can get a sense of your paintings there and paintings that people can say, I need that one. Um, well, yes, and yeah, they don't realize how much they need. It. <laughs> <laughs> and and then also to experience the Watkins Museum here at 11th and Massachusetts in Lawrence, and and what a great experience it'll be to to look at this 1960s history of Lawrence in this exhibit. So, thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you. You are it's very been welcome. A pleasure. And listeners, I hope some of you wander into the Watkins Museum, whether it's on Wednesday, the 21st of March, or some later time before yeah. mid-June, while that exhibit is still here. I would grow my hair long for, <laughs> for the occasion if I had any hair left. <laughs> thank you very much. And so long, <laughs> listeners. And thanks to Daniel Smith for letting people be listeners, because otherwise only Brownie and I would be hearing this conversation. Thanks, Daniel. And so long. <laughs>